Thank you guys. If you have a copy of God's Word, please take it and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18 this morning. We are continuing our journey through a letter that was a thank you note the Apostle Paul had written to the church at Philippi, a church he'd helped start and one he cared very deeply about. As he wrote this thank you letter, he used it as an opportunity to encourage the church at Philippi to remain unified around the gospel that they're called to. A unity he encouraged them to safeguard by humbly serving one another. And we saw last week that the the premier example of this kind of humility of serving one another is none other than Jesus Christ himself. And so what Paul's going to do today is very simple. He's going to unpack what it looks like to respond to Jesus. Last week he told us that one day every knee is going to bow to Jesus. Last week he told us that every tongue is going to confess to to Jesus being Lord. We know that's what the end is going to look like. But between now and then, how are we to respond to Jesus? We talk about responding to Christ. One of the first things that may pop into your mind is praise or, or worship of Christ. And sometimes it's very easy to think that the most appropriate response to Jesus is the, are these kind of euphoric moments of emotional expression, maybe during a time of worship or a particularly high point in your spiritual life. And while those points are important and very consistent with what we experience as followers of Jesus, Paul's actually not going to point to an emotional kind of expression as being the primary way we respond to Christ. What Paul instead is going to say is the primary way we're called to respond to the risen Lord Jesus right now is through obedience. In fact, what he's going to say, I believe, church family, is this. Our obedience to Jesus is the best way we can praise Jesus. I'm going to show you this from the Word of God, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Would you please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word from Philippians 2, starting in verse 12, going down through verse 18. Philippians 2, 12, we read these words. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world." holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Church, this is the word of the Lord. This is God's holy, infallible and an errant word to us. Would you please pray with me? Father God, we thank you for this moment and time you've given us as a church to come together around your word. 
God, would you please remove distraction? God, would you help us to hear your word today clearly? And God, as we hear your word today, would you help us not only to be hearers, but to be doers of your word as well? We ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. This passage starts by Paul discussing the theme of obeying Jesus. He calls the Philippians his beloved. He tells them that he loves them, that he cares for them. And he encourages them to obey him and obey Christ, whether he's with them or not. And then he unpacks the idea of obedience with a particular term that we need to pay attention to. He says the way he wants them to obey, notice the end of verse 12, is for them to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. This is a simple expansion of the idea of obedience, but Paul's emphasizing the fact that the Philippians, and by extension you and I, are to work out, are to continue to grow in an ongoing way the salvation that we've been given in Jesus. In other words, that the salvation we've been given in Jesus is like a rock that drops into the water, having ripples extending out from it, in which you and I are recognizing we're called to obey Christ. This impact that the salvation we've been given is meant to change us in our lives. And whenever we talk about our lives, biblically speaking, you're talking about three things. You're talking about your thinking, your feeling, and your doing. Your life and the call to obedience that's here means we're to obey Jesus in our thought life and our attitudes and feelings and in our actions. And especially when you look at 5 through 11, we've just seen this incredible example that Jesus has given us in his humility his service of us through the cross and his resurrection. And Paul's saying that kind of pattern needs to be worked out and developed in your life in an ongoing, continuous way. However, there's a tension in this passage we can't miss. Because what Paul is equally clear about is that this call to work out our salvation doesn't come from a power that you or I possess. Notice the tension that he raises in verse 13. He says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So on the one hand, Paul is saying, you have a responsibility. You have a call to obey and to conform to Jesus in your thinking, in your feeling, and in your doing. It's your responsibility. But you don't have the power within yourself to do that. God is the one who will and works for his good pleasure. That's important that we pay attention to how God does this. Because the primary way God empowers us to obedience is by changing our will and our desires. You see, before we come to know Jesus, our desires are for ourselves. We worship self. 
But when we come to know Christ, Christ changes our hearts so that we begin to long and desire and want Jesus. So if you can think about your heart like soil, like it's dirt, right? So before Jesus, your heart is like a desert. It's like a rocky-filled kind of soil where no life is really coming up except kind of a a selfish, self-centered focus. And what God does when he saves us is he changes the soil of our hearts, removes all of those stones, and makes the soil of our heart a kind of healthy, kind of nourished dirt that brings life. I don't know if you've ever had to do that, where you've come upon a piece of ground where there was no life and you had to remove rocks or you had to put nutrients down and water down to give that soil new life. That's what God does in our hearts. He changes our heart of flesh, our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. Once that happens, what we recognize is we have a responsibility to cooperate with God's work in our lives. So here's what that means. When you were converted to Jesus, when you became a Christian, that began a process in your life that never ends. This is the doctrine of sanctification. It's the idea that Jesus doesn't just save us and then shelve us. Jesus saves us and continues to sanctify and change us by continuing to work on the soil that is the desires of our hearts. So if you can picture this in your mind's eye, picture Jesus like a sculptor, right? He's got a chisel and a hammer, and there's this large piece of rock, right? And if you've talked to really expert Sculptors and people that are artists, what they say is they they just chisel away everything that's not what they're trying to produce, right? They've got an image or a picture of a person or a statue that they're trying to create. And the way a sculptor works is is they just get rid of everything that's not the image they're trying to produce. This is what Jesus does in our lives. When Jesus saves you, he simultaneously gets out his chisel gets out his hammer, and begins to chisel away at everything that doesn't look like him. You see, what Jesus is doing in us, and what we're called to work out in our lives, is the call to look more like Christ in our thinking, in our feeling, in our doing. We're called to cooperate with this work that Christ is doing in our lives. So here's the point I want you to see in Take home with you today. The primary way that we praise Jesus in our lives is by obeying Jesus. The highest form of worship of Christ is submission to Christ and the work of changing us from the inside out. Let me tell you why this is so important. We have to shift in how we're thinking about grace as just being a one-time event. It's true that the grace of God comes to us through an event, through a moment when Jesus radically saves us and he redeems us from our sins and delivers us from danger. But we have to start recognizing that grace is also from that event a transference of our lives into a whole new state of existence, a whole new realm of how we're living our lives. So one of the ways that I try to share this with people 
is through the, the picture of two kingdoms. Parents, I do this with kids a lot, where I'll share the gospel by talking about a kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of light. All of us enter the king, the wor- this world as human beings in the kingdom of darkness. This kingdom is characterized by sin, uh, by deception, by death. I heard one pastor put it this way, the kingdom of darkness is populated by people who are self-appointed, self-sovereigns, who serve themselves. It's about me in this kingdom, and I'm blinded by the fact that I think that in serving me, I'll make myself happy. But what Jesus Christ came to do was to die for all of this sin, all of this deception, the penalty that I should have gotten, Jesus takes on himself. So by faith, Jesus can transfer me from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light in which Jesus is king. Now, when I move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, Jesus begins to change me to look more like my king. He puts me into a new realm of existence in which he conforms and transforms me into his image. So when I draw this on a piece of paper for kids, I'll ask them, here's the kingdom of darkness, here's the kingdom of light. Which kingdom are you in? Maybe that would be an appropriate question to ask you. There's a kingdom of darkness, and there's a kingdom of light. Which kingdom are you in? Because what the Bible clearly tells us is that Jesus, and Jesus alone, is the only one who can move us from this kingdom to that. In fact, if you're taking notes, write down Colossians 1 13 through 14, and listen to how Paul not only talks about salvation as an event in which we're saved and delivered, but also as a transference into a new realm. Listen to this. Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. That's forgiveness, redemption from sin. And listen to this. And he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption. Jesus has not only delivered you from danger, he's transferred you by his grace into a new realm of existence in his kingdom. You and I recognize that what this means is that once we're in this kingdom, Jesus as our king demands our submission and our loyalty. In other words, when we're in this kingdom... Following Jesus is not optional. It's what we're called to do as being a part of this kingdom. Now, I recognize that this is a little confusing, okay? Because on the one hand, I'm saying, this is your responsibility. Work out your salvation. But on the other hand, I'm saying, according to Paul, that God's power is the only one that can work in you to change you. How do these two come together? I believe the key is at the end of verse 12. The bridge between our responsibility and God's power is found in how we're to obey. Notice the end of verse 12. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The way that we obey Jesus in a way that is not self-sufficient and taps in his, into his power, is by obeying 
in a way that acknowledges my desperate need for Jesus and my desperate security in Christ. See, the fear and trembling he's talking about here is not a fear of like me getting zapped or, or God sending me away. It's an awe for what I have in Jesus. It's an amazement for the grace that Christ has given me. So the way that I tap into the power that God has unleashed in my life and the way I cooperate by working out my salvation is obeying Jesus in a way that says, Jesus, I desperately, desperately need you. Let me illustrate it this way. Imagine that one day you go to your mailbox and in the mailbox is a letter and a packet informing you that you are the inheritor of an incredible estate. In fact, what you've inherited is a multi-million dollar corporation that has businesses all over the world, land holdings in just about every country, and assets that just are millions upon millions of dollars in value. And you get this letter, and in this letter it informs you that it's going to take you the rest of your life to explore and research and learn about this inheritance you've been given. Now, in order to learn about that incredible inheritance, you're going to have to travel. You're going to have to expend effort. You're going to expend resources in order to go to the different places where you have these assets. In fact, you're even going to have to work hard initially to remember what you have. Maybe you've been living paycheck to paycheck before you got this letter, and the next day you get your electric bill, and it's $78.50, and you go, oh my goodness, what am I going to do with this bill? It's for $78.50, and somebody looks at you and says, hey, don't you remember? You're the inheritor of this estate. You have no more worries. You have no more fear. Now listen to me. If you know Jesus, you have been given an inheritance that is far greater than anything this world could ever offer you. If you have Jesus, you have more in Him through His grace and His mercy than you could ever have from something in this world. You and I get to expend effort, spending eternity exploring the riches of the inheritance that we've been given. You have your life to read your Bible, not because you need to check a box or somebody's going to zap you if you don't. You get to read your Bible and pray and fellowship together with other believers because you get to explore and experience the riches of the inheritance you've been given. Church, do you see how beautiful what you have in Christ really is? Your greatest problem in Jesus has been solved. So yes, we read our Bible. Yes, we pray. Yes, we expend effort to kill sin and encourage righteousness, but we do so desperate for God's grace. We do so incredibly secure in the reality that our inheritance has been won for us by Jesus and Jesus alone. And we do all of those things because we get to. We have a privilege of learning about this incredible inheritance in Christ. 
So let me ask you this question, church. If indeed it's true that Christ is the master sculptor and he's working in your life, are you cooperating with the sanctifying work of Jesus in your heart? Is there an awareness on your part of the way Jesus is working in you and through you to change you? Can I give you an example of how you might could know that that's happening? You can see and sense God's sanctifying work in your life when God is quick and you are quick to see sin in your life. One of the ways you can know that you're cooperating with the sanctifying work of Jesus is by seeing points of disobedience in your heart. Can I tell you the good news about that? The good news is as we see these areas of growth that are needed, as we see sin in our hearts that we need to repent of, we experience God's grace afresh over and over and over and over again. You know what I've just been amazed about about Jesus over this last year in my life personally is the way I've seen God's grace not only forgive me of past sins and things that I've done and things that are happening now, but the way God's grace heals us. Did you know that part of the way God's grace works in your life is he doesn't just forgive you and say, okay, that's covered, but he helps you heal from hurt and pain and disappointment and disobedience in your life that still has effects today. You and I get to explore the riches and remember who we are by, yes, doing things like reading our Bible. One of the reasons I believe this passage is so important is because what it teaches is that this idea of sanctification and working our salvation out with fear and trembling is not for just special Christians who are super spiritual people. It's not just for missionaries or pastors. The kind of work that is described here is what the normal Christian life looks like. Now, why do I say that? I say that because there may be some of you here today who think you are Christians when you are not. I say that today because there may be some of you who have no idea, no experience of what this kind of sanctifying grace looks like in your life. What that means is if if you're not experiencing the transforming grace of God, you're probably not a follower of Jesus. Well, where do you get off telling me that? What, What biblical warrant do you have for people thinking they're Christians when they're not? Jesus in the Gospels is very clear when he says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do X, Y, Z in your name? Didn't we heal and cast out demons and do all these things in your name? And the Bible tells us that there will be a group of people who enter Jesus' presence who he says, depart from me, I never knew you. So what this passage clearly, clearly teaches is that this kind of working out our salvation with fear and trembling is what the normal Christian life's meant to look like. So if you are not experiencing the transforming power and grace of Jesus, you probably don't know him. I'm not talking about perfection. I'm not talking about a sinless 
existence. I am, however, talking about progression. Said another way, if you're not working out your salvation with fear and trembling, it's probably because God is not working in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Guys, I, I don't say that with any pleasure. My goal this morning is to not have you all leaving doubting your salvation in Jesus. But understand this. If maybe for the first time some of you are going, wait, wait a minute, I think that's me. And I've been at this long enough to know that I've, some of you may be feeling that. We had somebody in the first service who sat for months mad at me <laughs> because when I would talk about this, he would say, that's me. You know what eventually happened? He came to a point where he said, I'm done being prideful about this. I'm humbling myself before Jesus and I'm turning from my sin and I'm trusting Christ. If that's you today, please listen to me. Don't let pride, don't let the perception of others in your life keep you from really turning from your sin and trusting Christ. At the end of the service, I'm gonna be down front. I would love to pray with you, talk with you. But if you need somebody to talk to about where you stand with Jesus, don't let another day go by because what this is describing is what the Christian life is meant to be and what it's meant to look like. And here's what Paul does next. Paul is going to show us what praising and obeying Jesus looks like in some very practical ways. He's going to give us some practical examples to understand what does it look like for this kind of praise of Jesus to make its way into my life as I'm obeying Jesus. There are three relationships that Paul discusses as he unpacks this concept. Number one, Paul talks about relationships in the church or relationships with other believers. Look at verse 14 in your Bibles. He says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that ye may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. The command here is pretty simple. Paul's saying, Avoid grumbling and disputing. Another way of understanding that is complaining or needlessly arguing. Part of the background here is these verses are tying into uh, Exodus 16 and Deuteronomy 32, in which the children of Israel, just weeks after coming out of the promised land and seeing miracle after miracle, complain. They've seen God part the Red Sea, for goodness sakes, and they're already complaining about the food that they have or don't have. They begin to grumble. They even at one point are ready to kill Moses and head back to Egypt and slavery. And it's easy to see that in them, right? It's easy to look at that and go, oh my goodness, what were they thinking? They just saw miracle after miracle. But guys, I'm not sure we're much different from them. We can talk and sing about Jesus and about how great he is and then complain about the temperature in the room. Is it cold in here, by the way? I don't want to give you like room for grumbling and complaining, but we can complain about the music and our preferences in that way. We can even complain about our room being not set up the right way. We've got multiple small groups right now meeting in our multi-purpose room. It's loud in there. It's not the most convenient environment, and it's easy to complain about those things. 
But what's interesting is that Paul puts a significant premium, a priority, if you will, on this kind of avoidance. Because he goes so far as to say, look at verse 15 again, that if you avoid these things, you may be blameless, innocent children of God without blemish. Now, I got to tell you this week, I found that peculiar that Paul would say, if you avoid grumbling and complaining, you're going to be blameless. What's he talking about? I believe part of what Paul's doing there is he's connecting and putting a premium on the unity the church is to have as a body. He's saying when you safeguard the unity that the body of Christ is meant to have, there's an incredible testimony you have to the world. In other words, when we let our disagreements and differences melt away in favor of Jesus, we communicate to the world that we really believe what we sing about. You say Jesus is so important to you. You say a few moments ago, Jesus is your life, yet you're fighting about the color of the carpet or the style of the music. When we avoid those kind of petty disagreements, we communicate that Jesus really is who we say he is. So let me land the plane on this and make it plain. What this passage of Scripture is telling us is we need to be incredibly, incredibly cautious about complaining and arguing as fellow believers. We need to be careful that we don't express legitimate concerns in illegitimate ways. What Paul's talking about is not saying that we can't ever disagree or have points of concern, but we need to be slow to speak. Here's a rule of thumb. If you've not thought about what you're really going to say and prayed about that, don't say it. If you've not really carefully considered how you're going to come across, keep your mouth shut. That's the Spencer version. That's the Spencer translation there. Don't say it. Leave it alone. Our love for one another should be so precious to us that we are incredibly slow to speak a word of complaint or dispute. Imagine it this way, okay? Imagine in your house that piece of fine china you have, right? Maybe it's not in your house. Maybe it's in your grandmother's house, and it it sits in this big, nice glass case, and it's beautiful. It's ornate. Maybe it's hundreds of years old, and it only comes out right for Christmas and Thanksgiving, You know the stuff I'm talking about? And what would it be like if you came to your home to see your children on the front yard treating this china like a Frisbee? Moms, how would you handle that? Dads, how would you respond to your children treating those pieces of fine china like they're play toys? Not well, I would assume. And the reason you wouldn't is because they're treating something that's very precious and valuable in a very careless way. Now, here's my point. When we complain and when we argue as the body of Christ, it's like we're taking this precious thing called the unity of the church and we're throwing it around like a Frisbee on the front lawn. We have a sacred responsibility to safeguard the unity of this body, which means there are times when we need to be slow to speak and quick to listen. So let me ask you this question. Do you see the unity of this church as something that should be handled with precious care? 
Are you slow to speak a word of criticism and a word of complaint or an argument because you understand that what we have as a body is so precious and so valuable? Let me tell you why I'm camping out on this for a minute. The, the, the primary way most churches have problems and end up dividing and dissolving is not because something outside gets lobbed in here. The primary way most churches divide and dissolve is because they die from within. Right now, Riverview Baptist Church is experiencing incredible blessing, incredible growth, incredible miracles we're seeing as people are coming to Christ, as marriages are being restored, as people are being challenged and encouraged. But if we're not careful... We can let some petty disagreements, we can let some not well thought out, well prayed through, complaining and arguing, divide this church from top to bottom. Church family, let's be careful, careful, careful about expressing complaints and arguments. Number two, the second way that we communicate our praise for Jesus and obedience for Christ is through our relationships with non-believers. Look at the rest of verse 15 going into verse 16. He says that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life. Paul sets the context. He says, listen, you're living in a crooked and twisted generation. The twistedness was in the New Testament era was that the Roman culture believed that Caesar was a god. In fact, they had a, a statement that summarized their belief about Caesar. They said, Caesar is Lord. The problem was that the early church, especially based on the hymn in Philippians 2, based their confession on a different statement. They believed Jesus is Lord. And so there was a clash between the church and the culture at the foundational level about what they believed about who was Lord. That's why many of them lost their lives, because they would not say Caesar is Lord. They believed Jesus is Lord. Today, in 2017, especially in America, people don't say Caesar is Lord. Instead, Americans believe you our Lord. American culture has put such a premium on human autonomy and human independence that we actually believe we are lords and masters of our own lives. This has led to people defining right and wrong for themselves, even defining their gender and their sexual preference. We, on the other hand, say, no, we we don't believe you're Lord. We actually believe Jesus is Lord. It's why, confessionally, we take a stand on things like marriage. It's not because we're against people or trying to hurt anybody or keep somebody for happiness and wholeness. It's because we believe you are Lord of your life. Jesus and his authority is what we submit to. And so just like in the New Testament era, we're going to clash with our culture at some critically important points. Paul says that we shouldn't see this as something negative or something that we have to just endure and suffer through. Rather, notice what he says. We should be shining as lights in the world. 
amidst this brokenness and darkness in which human beings are self-sovereign, self-appointed self-sovereigns, we're to show them that Jesus is the answer. <laughs> this is why he said that we shine as lights by holding fast to the word of life. That word of life, the gospel, is what we're to trust and believe, but what we're to communicate. Being a self-appointed, self-sovereign, where you serve yourself as your life's goal, actually doesn't lead to happiness and wholeness. It leads to death and destruction. And what we're saying is, Jesus can deliver you from that. Jesus, and only Jesus, can save you from that. So Paul says, we need to be careful. We need to live lives in which we're communicating this great and glorious gospel with non-believers. One of the things that I want to point out is I think we're living in a day and age in which it's easy to lament kind of some of the things that are going on in our culture, isn't it? It's easy to complain and get discouraged about what we see on the news. I mean, our culture is going out of its mind. The world seems like it's getting crazier and crazier, and I think a lot of us are are concerned about the world our children and our grandchildren will grow up in. But what this passage reminds us of is that this darkness should not be seen primarily as a burden to be endured, but this darkness is an opportunity for the light to shine all the brighter. Think about this movie for a minute. The world that the Philippians, this book was written to, Do we think this world was perfect in which they lived? Do we think this world was without confusion about sex in the family? No, it wasn't. In fact, this world that the Philippians lived in was probably more pagan, more confused than even the world we're living in right now. Now, we might rival them in a few years. Sadly, we probably will run past the the paganism of Roman culture. But here's what I want to point out. The church of Philippi thrived even amidst darkness. The church at Philippi did not shrink back from the confusion in their culture. They pressed forward. You and I are called to believe that the church can thrive even amidst the darkness that's around us. Thirdly and finally, we see that Paul calls us to praise Jesus by obeying him even in our relationship to suffering. Our relationship to suffering. Notice how Paul talks about his experience, starting at the latter part of verse 16, going on to 18, and notice how he calls us to respond in a similar way to suffering. Verse 16, he says, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Most people believe in reading these words that Paul was probably close to death. That phrase being poured out as a sacrificial offering is the idea that Paul's pouring his very life out for the sake of the gospel. He's facing suffering, even persecution and death. And he says, I'm rejoicing in those things. And he looks at the Philippians and he looks at you and me to say, you rejoice too. The suffering and the persecution and the difficulty you will face, we are called to rejoice in the midst of that. This is not a glib dismissal of the reality of suffering. 
It's not a minimization of how difficult some of what you are going through this very morning really is. However, it is calling us to look suffering in the eye and say, I believe that Jesus is better. I believe that what I have in Christ, even though I may not feel this way right now, I believe and know that Jesus Christ is better than what I'm enduring. That Jesus will sustain me through difficulty and that Jesus will help me make sense of what I'm enduring. Jesus helps us remember that suffering and persecution in his hands is always used to conform us to his image, even in midst of difficulty and hardship. Paul is calling us to praise Jesus by enduring patiently through difficulty. And let me tell you the key as I close to how you rejoice in the midst of suffering. The way we rejoice in the midst of suffering is to humble ourselves to believe that God's plan is better than what I had imagined. Did you hear that phrase we sang a few moments ago? God, use me any way that you see fit. God, use me in any way that brings glory and honor to you. The way that we can really rejoice in the midst of suffering is humbling ourselves to believe that Christ's plan is better than what I had imagined. I don't know about you, but I don't regularly imagine persecution and suffering for my life. And so typically when it comes, what my first reaction is to be surprised, caught off guard, But the way we embrace Paul's mentality is by saying, God, this wasn't what I would have scripted. This isn't the life that I would have chosen necessarily, but I'm humbling myself to believe that the calling and the season of this position you've put me in in this life is for my good and for your glory. I'm humbling myself, Lord, to believe that your plan is better than I could possibly ever imagine. See, God has a special view and gaze towards people who humble themselves. We're reading through 1 Kings this year, and in 1 Kings 21, we're told about a man named Ahab. He was one of the worst kings Israel had ever seen. In fact, there's one pastor that calls him a vile toad. In fact, Ahab's reign was so evil, so horrible, that God sends Elijah, the prophet, to tell him, your days are numbered. You're done. I'm not only going to wipe you out, Ahab, I'm going to wipe out every male in your line, and you guys are finished. And in an incredible turn of events, at the end of 1 Kings 21, I'd encourage you to check it out, Ahab responds very differently than you would expect. The Bible says that Ahab humbles himself, begins to fast and pray and wear sackcloth. He tears his kingly robes and he lowers himself. He humbles himself. And in an incredible, even more incredible turn of events, the Bible records God talking to Elijah. And he says, Elijah, look. Look what Ahab is doing. He's humbling himself. And because he humbles himself, I'm not going to bring this disaster on him. I'm going to wait till he dies. And here's why that's so important for you and for me. That tells us something about God's radar. 
God's radar and his vision of the world is particularly keen and cued to look for people who humble themselves. So today, if you're finding yourself in some difficult circumstances, can I tell you what you must do if you're going to rejoice? You need to humble yourself to believe that God has a plan and a purpose even for this. Some of you, though, as I mentioned a moment ago, may not know the Jesus that we're talking about today. And what you need to do to respond to this Christ is to humble yourself for the very first time. See, the way that you humble yourself before Jesus the very first time is by acknowledging you have a problem. You have the same problem all of us do on this planet, and that problem is sin. It's led us to lie, manipulate, lust, hold hatred and bitterness in our hearts. It's, it's led us to do all those things. And the Bible's abundantly clear that because we've done all these things, we deserve a penalty of death, a penalty that we rightfully have earned. The Bible calls it even a wage. But while we deserve that penalty and that wrath and that judgment from God, Jesus stepped out of heaven and onto this planet and he lived a perfect life, and he offered his life in your place. The penalty and the punishment that we should have been given, Jesus, sweet Jesus, takes on himself. And when he rises again on the third day after dying on that cross, he looks at you, and he looks at me and says, you can be forgiven. I don't care if you think you're a Christian. I don't care what your parents have done or your grandparents have done or what you were baptized as an infant. I don't care about any of that. You can become a follower of mine today if you repent and trust Christ and Christ alone. Our pleading with you would be to not harden your heart, but to turn and trust Jesus and Jesus alone. Church family, let's be a people who praise the risen Jesus, but let's do so by submitting and obeying to this Christ through our relationships with others in the church, our relationships to non-believers, but also our relationship to suffering. Would you please pray with me? Father God, we thank you for your mercy and grace that's new every morning. God, we thank you that the Jesus we worship and praise has made it possible for us to be transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom that he rules and reigns over. God, I pray for anyone here today who does not know you. God, maybe they walked in thinking they do know you, but they've been shown today in clear fashion that if their life is not experiencing the sanctifying, transforming grace of Jesus, that they don't know you. Oh God, I plead for those people today. Would you open their eyes and their hearts and their minds to your truth? God, would you show them their desperate need for you? God, we plead for those people in this room today who may be in that position. God, I think all of us could call to mind people in our lives, maybe some of whom think they're Christians and they're not. God, we plead for their souls today. God, we pray that you'd find us faithful to be bold, to be clear about who you are with others in our lives. But 
God, we know you're the one who wills and works for your good pleasure. Would you work in them and their hearts? God, I'm thinking of somebody right now in my life that I just pray that you would orchestrate the events in her life right now to bring her to the end of herself. God, to show her the emptiness of the sin that she's running after. God, we pray for these people in our lives. God, we do thank you for the way you've saved us, (laughs) the grace and mercy you've shown us, and the faith that we have in Jesus. God, we're thank you that that, thankful that that saves us. I pray that your people would cooperate with your sculpting and sanctifying work in their lives. God, maybe even right now, would you put your finger on some parts of our lives that we know need to change, we know need to submit to your authority. God, help us to spend every moment we have expending effort and time and energy exploring the riches of your grace remembering the inheritance that we've been given and we lay all this at your feet Jesus in your sweet name we pray amen would you stand with us and sing and respond as God leads you